Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This next segment, we're going to go from fighter jets in the air to deep under the sea as we talk about a unique partnership between Project Recover and Undersea Legion Services and their mission to discover and recover those missing in action around the world from underwater crash sites. And here to share with us more details about that and an exciting life of a very unique veteran is Project Recover President and CEO, former FA-18 fighter pilot, Marine Corps Spec Ops veteran, Derek Abbey. Derek, how are you, sir? Wonderful, Phil. Thank you for having me. Indeed, man. And as a Marine, you're like a you're like a unicorn. You're like one of the rarest kinds of Marines I think I've ever met. What did you say you're called sometimes? Uh, my buddy calls me a Wookiee, a uh, Sasquatch, kind of a, a unicorn, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Sasquatch, yeah. Because rare, like rare is the day you meet a Marine Corps veteran that started out, you know, kind of grunt style and then went, became a fighter pilot and then decided to go to a Marsoc unit, which the Raiders kind of got resurrected. And you're a new plank owner of one of the most elite and one of the rarest divisions in the military, the Marsoc Marine Corps Special Operations Unit. Yeah, yeah. My, my career was an absolute fairy tale. You know, I enlisted right out of high school and I just you know, needed an escape. Really, my life was a little bit upside down, and the Marine Corps was a, an organization I could run away to to kind of get some stability and a system I could succeed in. And I definitely found that I wasn't expecting I would do 23 years and see all the things that I saw. But uh, yeah, it ended up being an incredible career, and I owe my life to the military. They they provided so much for me. I I wouldn't be where I'm at with today without it. Right on. All right, before we get into going deep underwater and yeah. scuba diving to find. MIAs and crash sites that have been lost to the sea for decades now. Um, let's start a little bit as you just kind of briefly touched on it. Yeah. FA-18s I'm familiar with because I was a carrier guy. Uh, did you, how do Marines do that? 
did we let you guys just play with the jets on land or did you land on the carriers too? <laughs> well, so I was, uh, I was an F-18 Wizzo backseater. So that's the F-18 Delta in the Marine Corps. So the two seat version of the F-18, the Marine Corps does both. They'll send uh, squadrons to the Navy to work on and off of carriers. But the, the Delta is the two seat version. The Marine Corps controlled almost for the entire time that they had them in there. They're in their twilight years now. And so um, they never sent the, sent the, the deltas to the ship those are all land-based okay. they have ship capabilities they could fly them on and off you could do a launch and a trap easy but uh, uh the marine corps like to keep control of them so for the most part we are flying off of um out of all sorts of airfields all over the world and for for the middle east it was out of kuwait and in iraq and all around afghanistan things like that uh when you say two-seater then uh, is that similar to what some might remember from top gun and the f-14 yeah, they call them Rios in the in the F-14 and the in the Hornet. They call them Wizos. It's a weapon systems officer. Um, and yeah, you can you do all the all the whiz bang stuff in in the back, and um, you got another guy handling the controls. And yeah, it's a complicated mission, but uh, I, I think it's the best, especially close air support, getting two minds together to to uh, work with people on the ground that are in dire needs. So I've got a lot got a chance to do a lot of that with a lot of. Um, soldiers, Marines, everybody that was on the ground in, in some pretty um, incredible situations. We got to work with them. That was definitely the favorite part of my mission was doing closer support. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So in Top Gun terms, you were goose. Yeah. Yeah. Goose. <laughs> All right. I'm so glad it had a better ending. God love mm-hmm. you. That's awesome. Um, what was your call sign? If I can ask. I was called Cosmo. And Cosmo. every call sign, yeah, every call sign has a has a story. Mine's mine's not too crazy, but you know, I I was an enlisted communicator, then found myself in the F eighteen, and we were going on our very first deployment. It was um, OIF one. It was getting ready to kick off, and you know, I'd been in the Marine Corps around a while, so um, I was a little bit more salty, although I hadn't had any combat experience yet. Uh, and so when we were taken off to to Iraq, actually we were flying out of Kuwait, um, a lot of people were shaving their heads because we were living in austere. Con- austere conditions. And I just was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let my hair grow. And so I was let my hair grow and we didn't really have showers or anything. So it was a little bit out of control. And I was a new guy in the squadron and we came back from a, a night mission one, one night and we we're having some food in the air force chow hall at like three o'clock in the morning. And one of the senior guys looks across the table at me and he says, you know, your hair is out of control. You look like Kramer from Seinfeld. So Cosmo <laughs> Kramer. So they do a call sign reveal. Yeah. And then, uh, they, uh, they put it to the squadron. Was it going to be Cosmo or was it going to be Kramer and Cosmo won out. And so I'm forever known as Cosmo now. <laughs> that is yeah. awesome. I always love a good call side story. Yeah. And I yeah. thought it was going to be something about your drink of choice. Actually, when I, first yeah. <laughs> I used to tell uh, in my single days when I would be flirting with women, I'd say I, I had done some uh, uh, modeling in cosmopolitan magazine and for some reason, oh. they never thought I was lying, which I'm like, would you look at me? I'm not a Cosmopolitan magazine person, but hey. You were a foot model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I mean, look, anything to make a clean landing, right? I mean, when you're in a target-rich environment, you got to use any weapon at your disposal. I'm with That's you. That's right. I'm with you. Okay. Um, how the hell we go from fighter jets to MARSOC? That is one yeah. of the coolest units. I knew a guy... Uh, Nick Carnese um, mm-hmm. got, got a beard grooming product line out there, and he was talking to me about the MARSOC units. And from what I understood, it was like this elite special forces unit, but then it or special operations unit uh, got disbanded or 
something like that. And then resurrected. And I mean, the recruitment video I saw for this thing going back to the eighties was just so rad. It it looked like seals. I mean, part underwater, part on water, hanging upside down, swinging through trees, jumping off of helicopters. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's it very much is. And World War II was when the Raiders were created and they were an elite unit doing elite things um, at the time. And then after the war, it was disbanded. And so for a long time um, after Special Operations uh, Command was created, the Marine Corps didn't have uh, a quote unquote special operations unit like the SEALs or the Green Berets or, or the PJs with the Air Force. And but we always had force reconnaissance. Um, so guys doing some pretty impressive stuff um what i call smurf ninja stuff you know doing all the snake eater work um but they never had a unit that was officially part of um socom and so in 2006 2007 time frame they stood up marine special operations command and created the special operations arm within the marine corps uh, of socom and, and recreated if you will the raiders and so when they when they took down the force flag initially and put up the marsoc flag that's when i had a chance to join and and those units always have an aviator um, in their ranks to help with forward air control you know strikes and assets and things like that and as it was being stood up i had an interest in the special operations community just from my, the beginning of my career being a ground guy you know reconnaissance communities was the elite i didn't actually plan on going to the aviation side of things i just kind of ended up in the aviation side of things and and loved it while i was there but when the opportunity to go join um uh, marsoc or the raiders uh, presented itself i i I jumped at it so i I went from ready rooms to team rooms and and got to work with some incredible people and do some incredible stuff what was the transition like though because i think about you coming from like you know, flyboy yeah. status. And I mean, yeah. at least the ones I saw on the carrier, you know, you guys, yeah. you guys were cool, but you know, there was a lot of cool haircuts. I didn't know about what was under the flight suit. Like yeah. if you guys were built out of steel and made of muscle um, and then you're going <laughs> with the ground pounders, the guys that are on the ground that are super fast, high speed, low drag, super fit, all muscles, yeah. all hustle. Um, did you have to train up to make it through the land nav part of the training or how did, or did you get picked on for being a soft guy? I mean, no, I didn't actually. I, uh, but well, first, you know, the hair is just as cool on, on the special (laughs) operation side as it is on the aviation side. Um, So so my Cosmo call sign fit in, uh, in, in the Marsan community, but, um, but it was actually, believe it or not, very, very similar because in the, in fighter squadrons, in the aviation side of things, it's a, it's a bunch of people with a lot of type A personalities in those ready, ready rooms that are people that are, you know, elite overachievers in their own ways. And so I left that ready room and, and you know, checked in with this unit and it was, you know, it, it just it just turned out that t- the tasks changed. And I think there was a lot of mutual respect across the communities because the realization is that you know you can't half-ass this work and be successful okay before we get into going underwater and all the great work that you're doing let me have one no there i was moment as an f-18 pilot well there's a there's a lot of them just having the opportunity to work with with people on the ground that found themselves in in dire situations whether that was the whole invasion into iraq and doing the full push north um as soldiers and marines you know hightailed it to baghdad or later on fallujah was really 
the second battle of Fallujah that I got to participate in. And, and we were basically developing urban close air support tactics in real time. And so being able to do that was just unreal, really. I mean, we were taken off not too far. We were like 10 minutes from Fallujah. So we would take off and there were a lot of cases that, um, you know, basically we were dropping our ordinance across the street from Marines that were in, that were in trouble. And, um, that's danger close in those, in those situations. And so typically when you do a nine line or an order, if you will, for um, closer support, the guy on the ground will give you the nine components of that order. And if it's within danger close, you have to ask for their initials. So they acknowledge that you're dropping ordinance close to them that could potentially harm them and, and others within their unit. And so it, it was happening so often that, that the Marines would give us their nine line and immediately follow it up with their initials because it would just minimize the back and forth. Um, and it was just one after another, after another, after another. But later on in that battle, after things started to slow down, there was a, there was a unique case that uh, I remember distinctly in this, like basically a fire team of Marines was, was moving around, just kind of doing some patrols, if you will, at night, but they were by themselves. And um, there were, there were, uh, enemy that were digging up caches in the area, weapons that they had uh, buried, and and these guys had spotted them, and and somehow we get on the hook with this, you know, young lance corporal, and I could tell when he keyed his handset, he was just he just couldn't believe that he was talking to an F eighteen, and it was nighttime, so he couldn't see us, and he was nervous because these guys were moving around, and he wasn't quite sure where they were at, and but he he knew what building they were in, and so. I had this, you know, laser that they could see on night vision goggles. And, you know, I just said, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're here kind of speaking regular, regular words. You, you know, you, you point out where he's at and, and we're going to take care of him. Uh, of but course. yeah, he, I, I just distinctly remember his demeanor changed when, when we said that and um, he's like, Oh, okay. Okay. And then, you know, took care of the mission and those guys went about uh, their way and were able to continue through the rest of the, rest of that battle without any incident but it would it just made me feel good and i wish i had that conversation recorded it was on secure comms but it was right. just one of those things that i always re reference it as a, a leadership example like you know if you can remain calm it's it's amazing how calm is contagious and that is awesome and then could you hear the cheers on the other end when uh, yeah. like you dropped the building there was there were plenty of times where that where the marines knew if they keyed the handset you and we could hear the ordinance coming in and then yeah there was always a lot of um high volume cheering and, and swearing and, and all sorts of celebrations after, after those occurred, but it always <laughs> made you feel better. And just kind of like I knew when we would come in and, you know, somebody would call for a show of force basically. And, you know, sometimes you're kind of curious, do you, do you really need a show of force? Is there somebody out there? And so the show of force would mean they just want us to come in low and fast and basically scare people that might be coming after them, but they would do that often and key the handset. And we we're always happy to do that, whether there was an actual threat there or not. Roger, well, then, I, have I, have a I got a I, we're, we're Marines at tough three degrees. No, Private, just just tell me where the building is. <laughs> you want me to explode, okay? Just point to it and I'll drop it. So that's pretty much the way it went. And then I would—I had the luxury of being on the on the ground and experiencing it from the other side. And so I understand, you know, after you've been out on patrol for a while and and you find yourself in one of those situations, having having those aviators come through and and make some noise, that is truly the sound of freedom. You know, we used to say, you know, we're tucking your kids in at night. That's us tucking your kids in at night. <laughs> 
That's awesome, man. I love the smell of JP5 in the morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Okay, we could go on and on and on, but the story goes on and on and on. And this is, we haven't even got, we haven't even scratched the surface, so to speak. A little nautical diving <laughs> on there. Now, after the Marine Corps, he pursued his education at the University of San Diego. While earning a master's in higher education leadership, Derek conducted research on how universities and colleges work with military-connected students on their campuses, and his thesis provided best practices for colleges around the country to use in creating successful military programs. And he also went on to earn his doctorate, focused again on conducting practical research that would help make higher education more accessible to veterans. But it was a connection he made while still a young pilot with the Marine Corps' F-18 squadron that inspired him to continue to work to find our fallen heroes. I was in the ready room one day and this uh, phone call came in and I was the historical officer. So the duty officer just gave me the phone. Hey, Cosmo, hey, this you answer this phone. And it was a World War II veteran on the other end of the line um, George Burianic and he's calling the squadron just to see if we had any contact information for information for World War II veterans. And it's like, you know, we don't really have those records, but what are you guys doing? It's like, Oh, we're having a reunion in Indiana. And it's like, really? It's like, yeah, we do this every year and we travel around the country. And I said, well, I want to come out there. It's like, yeah, you should come out. And so me and a buddy took a jet out there and we joined the World War II cadre that were gathered. And, uh, you know, we had just come back from Iraq. So they're like, tell us about F-18s in Iraq. And, and we we're like, who cares about F-18s in Iraq? Tell us about Corsairs and World War II, you know? And they're like, who cares about that? But we just came together and bonded. And it was like, you know, time hadn't passed. We were all young aviators from, you know, whatever time frame we were, we were serving in, but made this connection. And they said, you have to meet this guy, Pat Scannon. He has this organization called the Ben Prop Project. And they go to Palau once a year, searching for Americans missing in action from our previous wars. And it's like, well, that sounds really interesting. And so Pat and I ended up meeting the following year because I scheduled the reunion to happen in San Diego. So we brought the old World War II cadre to San Diego to meet with a new squadron. And him and I met that year and quickly became friends. And he invited me to go on a, a mission. And so at the time I was deploying quite a bit, but uh, shortly thereafter, I made my way to Palau on my very first mission. And um was part of my very first discovery and MIA on my first mission. And, and as it turned out, it was actually a member of my squadron from World War II that we found. We found his Corsair. And so at that point, there was no turning back. And I just continued to participate in the organization as a member. And as we grew and had more and more success and more visibility and grew the nonprofit and partnerships with organizations like Scripps, Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware and others at Legion Undersea Services now, um, you know, I became a board member. And then when I finished my PhD, they asked if I would come over and take over as president and CEO. And, and that's where we are today. And, you know, we used to do one mission a year, um, every year in the South Pacific and the nation of Palau. And now we're doing multiple missions a year all over the world. We've been to 20 different countries now. All you pilots, all you fly boys sitting around <laughs> together, sharing stories about whose stick was bigger and, and, and uh, you know, the whole no S there I was moments, I'm sure got passed around like the cold beers. Yeah, lots of those. Um, <laughs> so cool, man. So cool. What did it first look like when you were with this group? Project That's a great Recovery? question. Were you guys like, were you donning the scuba suit and going out there with them? Or were you on the boats? Or were you doing like the mapping stuff? The missions tended to be a month 
and we would do research throughout the year in preparation for those and then we would search certain parts of the jungle and search in certain parts of the water um, with the best information that we had and it was pretty pretty archaic you know we you know the highest level of technology that we might have had was a gps but other than that it was machetes through getting through the the jungle and then and then scuba gear basic scuba um underwater and and we found success you know we've, we've we were finding these sites and and documenting them and turning them over to the department of defense and then ultimately people were being repatriated Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. For ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And we'll return to our conversation with Marine Corps veteran, retired Major Derek Abbey, who after a career in both aviation and special operations, is still going on unique missions around the world as the president of Project Recover. Only this time, the missions are to locate crash sites and repatriate our MIA service members. We talked about what it's like searching for clues from historical battles that have been buried at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean for decades. Were these dive sites that like locals already kind of knew about and they were yeah. like, hey, we'll take you to Baymon, we'll take you out to, yeah. you know, whatever it is the we call this one the tail hook or something. <laughs> and it's like, or were yeah. you guys literally discovering like virgin sites that no one had seen and fuselages and plane parts that had been on the bottom of the ocean? since that fateful day during World War II? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question because Palau is a world-renowned uh, scuba diving location. And, but the truth is that we definitely weren't diving, you know, the pristine, beautiful places where everybody is traveling to and all knowing about. Um, there's something special about Palau and why the work started there. Um, very, very small island community, you know, about 20,000 people, population, multiple islands, not very developed since World War II, especially at that time. And so the jungles were relatively untouched. The waters and lagoons around um, the islands were relatively untouched and relatively shallow that we could um, scuba dive in those areas. But the places that we were searching were, were not. They were, they were the mucky water, the low visibility. No, no tourist was going and hanging out there. Same thing with the jungle. We're, we're hiking deep into the jungle, you know, just using our feet. And we would connect with local hunters and fishermen that would know sites um, and possibly like, oh, there's some aluminum over here, but they didn't necessarily know it as an airplane or things like that. And when we first started doing the work, you know, they thought we were treasure hunters and, and things like that. They're like, oh, these guys are, you know, what are they doing? They're off in the middle of nowhere. Nobody goes to those locations until we started finding um, sites. And then uh, the, the locals really um, connected with the, the message and the value of it. They believe in Palau about when somebody, dies they are returned to the island of their mother and so when they realized that we were looking for and finding service members that were ultimately going to be repatriated back to their loved ones in the united states they made a connection to it on multiple levels one the cultural connection of the importance of bringing somebody home but also they have this deeply felt gratitude for the sacrifice of american service members that gave them their country back um from World War II. And so it was a really neat connection to see that happening. And sometimes when I talk about this work, um, we talk about the healing impact that occurs from the individual level all the way to the national level. And we understand that very much so from the American side of things um, through our direct connection to it. But then there's this parallel side of impact that happens in the host nation. And we've seen that many times over yeah. in Palau where people were 
you know, my, my family would talk about this. There was this oral history about this loss. And, you know, the truth is my, my father who since passed was, was telling the truth. And I was able to share that message with, with you. And then we found the site. And so that healing occurs from them. And it's unbelievable, you know, these wounds that are held decades and decades later um, from a war like World War II and others. Mm, so cool. Walk yeah. me through just one of your memorable dives where you found something and then connecting with the family on the back end. Yeah, it's a it's an accomplishment. And the feeling is very similar um, across the board, whether it's uh, on land or in the water, you know, you finally see the site and we've done so much research up to that point. Um, we're almost 100% positive once we find a site that it's it is who we're looking for, you know, there might not be another aircraft in that area, or we've triangulated enough information to know that this is the aircraft. Of course, we're not 100% there yet as, as far as knowing, but we know. And so, yeah, there is, you know, the, the biggest thing is the propeller underwater. You know, usually these sites are mangled and broken and in and, and different, <laughs> just, they're just, you might not recognize them as airplanes uh, when you first, when you first see them, but one thing that's pretty common on these sites is, you know, that propeller sticking uh, out of the ground. And, and in many ways it's, it's a grave site. And so the realization is that, yes, we found this, we, we were, were we've been successful in locating this site. Um, answers are going to be provided. So all that, all that just floods um, into your mind, um, you know, underwater, you have to, be mindful that you're, you're still underwater and you're diving and you have to pay attention to scuba diving, but you, this flood of emotions definitely um, comes over to you. And it's very, very personal for everybody on, on the mission. And um, I know definitely for me, and I know my other teammates too, there's always this point of just kind of reaching out and touching that, that propeller or other pieces of the aircraft that, that, that just remind you that this is, this is real. And, and these answers are going to be provided to the family members. And, you know, many times the families most of the time, the families don't even know that we're looking. And so we were collecting these answers that are ultimately going to be delivered to them. And you, you asked about that, what, what happens when, you know, we, yeah, we have the Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, give me one, like, again, no shit, there I was moment when you found a plane and were able to identify some way, somehow, who that was and what plane that was. Yeah, the, the one that comes to mind is actually a, a land site. Um, and it, it was that first mission that I, that I told you because we we were looking for this Marine, Marine Corsair and, and we were in this super, super thick jungle. It was the only aircraft in the area that was lost. So if we if we can find it, you know, that it, that's going to be it. And um, we knew it was in this mangrove jungle. And um, but if you've ever worked in mangrove jungle, it's it's almost impossible to move through. I mean, you can lose your direction. The sun will get blocked out. It's very, very hot and thick. And so we, we just decided, you know, we're going to, we're going to look in this jungle for a little bit. And we started venturing out and we had some handheld radios and my, my colleague, Joe, Joe Maldanga saying, who's a local Palauan and our translators, and he's one with the jungle and one's one with water. And he comes over, comes over the radio and he says, you know, I think I have something you're looking for. And, uh, I could, I could hear him when I yelled out to him, but I couldn't quite see him. And he was maybe 50 yards away, if that maybe 50 feet away. And I, 
I started trying to make my way through there toward him as well as the other members. And we're trying to hack our way through. And, and I think I did a full circle around him before I actually got to him because the, the jungle was so quick, uh, so thick. And then once we got there, the only thing that he had was a feed tray to a 50 cal machine gun from uh, the aircraft, but it was aluminum. It, it was a feed tray. It was definitely aviation. And so it was that moment that, that we knew that we found this aircraft. And so we, we came together and then we just started spreading out from there and we found more and more and more of the, of the aircraft and then ultimately got to a, a, an identifying piece of the aircraft that we knew which, which type of aircraft it was. And at that point we could triangulate, you know, information and, and become with a 99% solution that this is, this is the person that we're looking for. So now fast forward a few days later where we were um, interviewing an elder and who lived close by and and he starts telling us a story of when he was a kid and he was alive during world war ii and he's like oh right over here by this hill you know the japanese were there and i hid into this ditch and he watched this aircraft go down and we had not said anything about this aircraft that was lost and he said it went down in this mangrove over there and, and he was talking about the aircraft that we had just found and we hadn't told him anything no leading questions or anything like that and so then we asked him well did the japanese go in afterwards to to try and go after the aviators and he says oh no it's too thick and so we asked him well has anybody else going gone in there since world war ii that you've seen and he's like no you have to be crazy to go into those mangroves and then we told him the story of going in and finding this aircraft that we had found a few days later and he thought we were the, the craziest people around but yeah and that that story was actually I'm a member of my, my squadron. So that was, that's definitely near and dear to my heart and one that's going to be stuck in my mind forever. It was the first aircraft I was a part of locating member of my squadron, you know, all the, all these things that had to come together and oh. to include a lot of luck. I'll still remember picking up that, that feed tray and, and just realizing this is it. This is the, we found the, we found the aircraft and that's a similar feeling since then when we find other other aircraft is like, this is it. We, we found it. We, we have success. Um, this is going to turn into, you know, something incredible for the loved ones of this, of this service member. They're going to have answers to questions that they've been holding for, for decades. And, you know, healing's going to be able to occur and, and some celebrating is going to occur. And yeah, some joy because they actually have an artifact now that connects them to, you know, generationally speaking, this is now the grandkids or the great grandkids. You know, I, I say people go through three phases when they when they join our organization. The initial phase is, you know, they hear about it and they believe in the mission they want to participate and support and they and they become a member. They go through the process and they become a member and then and then that's the first phase. And then they go on and they start going on missions. And they reach the second phase when they participate in a discovery. And now this whole thing that you've been working for is real. You know, that this is actual real. These, these sites have been lost and, and we found them. And so that's a whole nother level of commitment. And then the last one is when that MIA is repatriated and you have an opportunity to connect with the family and you can, there's no way to accurately put it into words, um, but you see this impact of the work that you've been doing and you get to witness that and like I said, these memorials and celebrations that whether it's Arlington National Cemetery or small town USA across the across the country, they're all they're all unique, but also very similar in the in the same way. And so you get to see that 
you know, these, these people didn't have answers and now they have answers to these long held questions. Many times they've made up stories that weren't necessarily accurate, but now they had the factual information of what happened to their loved one. And, um, and you get to witness that legacy and, and share that legacy with them. There's been many times where, um, I think of service members you, and you interact with their family and they have this long tradition of um, service in our military to this day. And every one of them has been sat down when they were making their decision to join the military and, and told, you know, you live up to this legacy of your family, you know, uncle or grandfather or whomever it was, was lost yeah. in World yeah. War II and is still lost and sacrificed on our behalf. And so this is a legacy that you have to live up to. And they've told us that story. And you, you know, you just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And then what, so then that's the third phase. People get to that point and it's just like, oh my goodness, you know, now you have a legacy that, that you've created um, to have this wave of positive impact across our nation through bringing somebody home um, and their sacrifice was made in World War II or whenever it was. And now there's another wave of positive impact from that sacrifice when they come home and these communities come together and start connecting and, you know, um, trust is reestablished with our nation and, and things like that for this promise that was made to those families that, you know, if they were lost in battle, we'll do everything that we can to bring them mm -hmm. home. And, and so then now we have seen and continue to see that these families, we've had members of families come forward and say, you know, you just did this on your own accord. How do I pay this forward? And so now we have gold star family members of people that we've worked to repatriate them. Now their family members are, are member of our members of our organization. So cool. A question out of order, but just right. a quick answer here on this one. How is it that you're able to determine who and what plane that is when you come across a site with something as minimal as a feed tray to a 50 cal or piece of a propeller? Like, how do you know yeah. what plane and what pilot that was? Yeah, well, it all starts uh, and the, this whole mission starts with research. So we comb the archives for information, you know, after action reports and everything like that, that are, that are held in the archives and create cases from those. And then we also do interviews with, with family members, fewer and fewer World War II veterans or eyewitnesses now, but, but family members and, and they could potentially have information in some of these trunks that are sitting in people's attics and things like that, notes from, from the war. And we take all that information compile that and then we make decisions on what we're going to do the missions based on the information that we have and we'll we'll come through all of those things you know we started to build a database that has hundreds of cases associated with thousands of missing americans and we'll prioritize those based on likelihood of success and then we'll execute those search missions and those search missions could be in the water they could be on land we do a lot of work in the water today because there's been less and less work that has been done in the water and also working with some of the most amazing scientists in the world from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware and others where you can use their automated underwater vehicles to comb the ocean floor and collect side scan sonar information and other information and then look for, um, you know, potential targets or points of interest, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we can dive those more safely or if they're deep, we can use a, a ROV to inspect those uh, to see if they're aircraft or not. Um, and then once we do that, once we find a site, we'll do everything we can, can to identify what type of aircraft. Um, and then two 
the point of the exact aircraft. And that can be done through finding identification plates or other things like that. And sometimes you can't do that. So then you have to do, well, how many planes were lost in this area? Um, how many were this type of aircraft that we found? If there was only one, well, now you've narrowed it down. Um, it's not 100%, but you're, you're pretty pretty obvious. And if you can find certain plates or certain identifying information, then we know exactly which aircraft it is. And once we know exactly which aircraft it is, we know who the aircrew were, whether they're missing or not. And then we'll document all that information. Traditionally, what we have done is we've documented all that information and then turned it over to the Defense POW MIA accounting agency or the mm -hmm. predecessor organizations. And then they would assess that information and determine whether they were going to do a recovery mission. We still do that, but now our mission has expanded into the recovery phase in 2015. Um, DPAA had gone through a restructure and when they did that they um, opened the organization up to public-private partnerships so we had an unofficial relationship with them before we were, where we would feed them information but now we have an official relationship with DOD that allows us to expand our mission to recovery and actually recovering remains and artifacts and then transporting them back to the United States um, typically they go to a lab either in Hawaii or in Nebraska and that's DOD locations, and they have to do the blind identification of remains when those are recovered. Um, uh, Title 10 restrictions ensure that that has to occur in those labs. So that's the only thing in our mission that, or in the entire spectrum of the mission that we don't do is the official identification of remains. And those are remains, when you say remains, it can be those of a plane, like mechanical pieces, or, or, or when you say remains, you're, you're, you're yeah. speaking to our fallen service member. Yeah, osseous material, you know, what typically bones and things like that. That's wow. that's usually the only thing that's remaining. You can and will bring back other um, artifacts that that will help with the identification, of course. So, I mean, obvious things like a dog tag or rings or or other personal effects. When you find those, those help um, with the with the identification. Um, believe it or not, you know, most people go nowadays. Now, most people go straight to DNA as probably the primary. Um, identifying piece, but that's just one. People they still use a lot of dental records. There's very well kept dental records um, mm. from that time that they can still still use. They do use DNA, but then they use everything to you know use as much information as they can to make sure they're as as positive as possible. And you know the families are notified that their loved one was located and identified and has been repatriated. And now they have the option to do everything that goes with anything. You know, full military honors. And typically that's the point when. Um, they're introduced to the work that we did to, to find their loved one. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, starting with like the genealogical almost research of the mission to yeah. go back through the mission data on the records, the after action yeah. reports, finding where the likelihood of success would be to locate aircraft and then getting deep either into the jungle or into the water and finding it yeah. to find the actual material pieces. And then the back end, with the CSI laboratory kind of stuff going on. Um, just an amazing, amazing mix. And it's only growing here, um, which is what brings us to, you know, sticking the landing, so to speak, but yeah. brings us to where we started. And that is your now partnership with uh, Legion Undersea Services, which sounds like, um, I admit, when I first heard it, I, I, I thought it was like superheroes. Like it's you and Aquaman and you know, other superheroes of the deep that can go down and do, you know, Mission Impossible. But uh, share with me a little bit about that partnership and why it's just so, so damn cool. Yeah, well, you know, I definitely look at those guys as superheroes because they are, they're very in, 
incredible people and and they bring uh, an expertise that really expands our mission and you know in 2012 when we started working with Scripps and Udell you know our our mission just exploded in capability because of the technology and things that they were bringing to the table and so when we started um, going into the recovery phase and realizing that we were going to do recovery underwater you know we we started looking at how do we do this at the highest level possible, the right way, the safest way um, that's going to result in success. And that's, you know, bringing, bringing these missing service members back to their family. And um, we were introduced to um, some, some Navy divers that, you know, talk about the highest level of success is that these men for the most part have um, committed their life to, um, living underwater and doing work underwater in the, in the highest level of capability. And so we started working with them and really discussing how to um, execute this mission at the highest level possible, the safest level possible, and realizing through those discussions that, you know, these people that we're talking with are on the same level as we are, as far as commitment and belief in the mission. And um, maybe we should make this a long-term uh, relationship. And so, you know, we, we got, we asked for a call with them after, after kind of interacting with them for a while. And, and initially we were just talking about, we're going to do this one mission together, but we were so impressed with the capability that they were bringing and, and how they were going about their planning and preparation. And, and it filled us with so much confidence that, you know, we said, Let, let's get on a call and see, you know, what, if, if they're interested in some sort of long-term commitment and, you know, I think once once the words came out of our mouth, like, hey, we'd really like to work with you guys long term, it was a fraction of a second in response that this is exactly what we want to do, you know. Um, and so the, they're former former Navy divers. So they understand the importance yeah. of, of bringing lost service members home. And and you can ask them across the board and they'll say this is the most fulfilling mission that, that they could participate in. And many of them, when they were active duty, had actually... Um, participated in this mission through the Department of Defense, through the DPAA and the predecessors. And so, and some of them have actually um, done recovery on sites that we located. Uh, so it was really neat to see, hey, now we can, we come together right. later on down the road. And so we, we've established that official relationship with Legion Undersea Services because, you know, we think they're the best in the business. We think that they're going to, well, they do expand our capability to execute this mission at the highest level possible underwater in the safest way possible. And, um, you know, there's no, there's no learning that's going to occur or there is learning that's going to occur, but it's going to be minimal. It's going to be right, right to it. Yeah. And so we're excited to get into the field with them this summer and, and start bringing some uh, missing service members home together. And, and that's, that's what they're going to do. They're going to be the, the ones in the water um, doing, doing the heavy lifting underwater, really literally and figuratively. Yeah. And, and last question is what does that exactly look like? We talk about expand the capability and everything. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, you, you and I kind of understand operations, yeah. but for the layman, like what is it that they're actually doing? Do they have underwater unmanned vehicles you'd mentioned? Do they have massive cranes that can pull these huge pieces of fuselage yeah. or whatever out of the water like what does it look like what they do yeah the biggest the biggest thing that they bring is the expertise and the understanding on how to do this mission underwater given all the variables which all the variables are going to change uh depending on the mission so um how deep is it um what kind of aircraft is it is it going to require 
you know, moving big chunks of metal around? Um, is it going to require just digging or, you know, using these big suction devices underwater? What kind of dive diving technology are they going to utilize? Um, is it is it rebreather technology? Is it tech diving? Or in the case that we're we're working on right now, they're using surface supply options. So so their capability and understanding and be able to take all those variables into account and execute the mission safely and, and efficiently is the biggest thing that, that we work for. They have, you know, between them hundreds of years of service in working underwater and they continue to do this in different capacities. So so for the most part, they were, you know, doing underwater work as contractors. So, you know, somebody gets drunk and, and sinks their boat in some lake in Kentucky, well, their their insurance that person's insurance company hires them out to bring their boat off of the off the lake floor or something so they they understand how to work in that environment lift heavy things move things underwater things like that where that's way beyond just searching you know so um and there's when you're exerting yourself underwater there's other things to be um aware of as far as how the physiological physiology works with your body when you're used, working with certain gases at certain depths and and things like that and so those are very very varsity things you know that's just not for the layman diver to come off the couch and say yeah like i can do that you know definitely not you need people at the highest level possible to do that and the most important thing is to do this safely you know so you know we don't want to risk the life or lose the life of somebody on a mission looking for somebody that's unfortunately since passed. And so that's something that that's the highest priority for us. And they bring the highest capability of doing that and doing it the right way. And so um, it just made the most sense to, to do it. Um, so they, they come with a variety of um, expertise from, you know, how mm -hmm. to cut through metal underwater at certain depths to how to execute this mission uh, exerting this much energy over this long a period to do it in the safest way possible and that's that's what they did say so it's a lot of beeps and squeaks and uh, a lot of looking at charts and and understanding um all that stuff about it but that that's why we bring them in because they are the smartest in the business when it comes to it so cool a beautiful story the way you're able to find these and you know again bring home the legacy of somebody's fallen relative um derek tell me a little bit more about where i can find more information and make a donation to the organization project yeah. recover yeah the, the best thing to do is go to projectrecover.org and um, you can find out more and more information find some stories about some of the the service members that have been repatriated how we go about our work in different ways all sorts of things like that and of course if you want to make a donation you can make a donation there we also want to hear from people that might have information related to a lost loved ones they can reach out to us through our website to provide information very cool derek abby from fighter pilot to marsoc raider to deep <laughs> under the sea and uh, repatriating our mias can't thank you enough so great man Thanks for having me, Phil. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C., and I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.